0: Hello and welcome to My Life on the Line, a podcast by Ref Coach. I'm Jack, and as always, I'm joined by Ally. On this podcast, we show the humans behind the whistle through the eyes of referees, past and present, as well as the broader footballing world. Today's guest is John Chapman. John has been a FIBA basketball referee from 2014. He spent six seasons on the Australian NBL, which is the National Basketball League. He refereed over 100 games, including the 2019 Grand Final. He also refereed at the 2018 Commonwealth Games in Brisbane, where he refereed the bronze medal match. Away from the officiating court, John has also co-founded the Referee Management System Refbook and Referee online store Ref Warehouse.
1: It was a very insightful chat. John talked us through his experience and uh, his history as a referee. How did he start from his dinner table with his mum? Advising him to maybe try and referee to make some uh, cash, to referee in some of some great games and having incredible experiences. He talked us through some of his highlights as a referee, but also some hardships and how did he deal with that? At the end, we also talked about why he decided to take a break from refereeing and dive into his new business as a co-founder of Refbook.
2: I recommend a on-field review.
0: Stop it, stop it, stop it. To it. John, thanks for joining us on My Life on the Line tonight. It, it, it's great to have you here. Obviously, a fellow fellow official. It's always good to talk to fellow match officials, albeit from uh, the sport of basketball this time.
1: No problems, guys. Good to be here.
0: And Ali, of course, as always.
1: Good to be with you again, mate. Good to be with you guys. Thanks for doing this, John.
0: So, John, I think a good place to start and and something I'm quite interested to learn about um, is the journey to becoming an NBL referee. So we had Bill mildon uh last year, who's obviously heavily involved in basketball in Australia, but uh, when he was involved, it was a bit of a different time. Um, we touched on, before we started recording, the NBL is, you know, an incredibly professional league. It's... Um, Got a, a record TV deal. It's selling out crowds. So it, it really is a league, as as you said, that's comparable to Euroball, and it is challenging to to get up with, there with the NBA. Like, I don't follow the NBA or the NBL or basketball, but I know a few of the players that are coming to NBL, which I think says a lot about where the where the comp is going. So, as much as this is a long winded question, the journey to becoming an NBL referee where does it start in the basketball world yeah
2: it's, it's a big question to ask and billy Mildenhall, hall he's a he's a legend of our our craft he's he's what folklore is made on and <laughs> uh he's right up there with the the games record holding uh, him and ray hunt w- will be almost unshakable i think with the amount of games that they have worked in the nbl and you're right that they they were working at a different league to what it is at the moment they they were in the, the NBL's first heyday when we were selling out Flinders Park in Melbourne. And we had teams in Canberra and Tasmania, uh, although there is a, a new Tasmania franchise that will join this season. But that, that was really when the NBL was was moving and shaking as, as one of the, the the entertainment solutions in Australian sport. And and guys like Billy Mildenhall, they were there from day one, uh, from when the, the league was first installed. Until it became the NBL, and then and then history is is as it's evolved. Uh, my personal story is probably similar to to many referees, uh, and they they started the grassroots level. So I was a player. I played for Doncaster; that was my local club because that's where I lived. And and after a while, you, you get to an age where all, all of a sudden money starts to become something that you'd like a little bit of, and. I remember having a conversation around the dinner table and canvassing all the different types of, of employment that I might consider uh, to get some some cash. And I was I was 10 or 11 at this stage, and, and Mum said, well, have you thought about being a basketball referee? And, and of course, I, I hadn't really thought about that. When you're playing and, and you're growing up playing, you don't really think about maybe putting on a whistle. But I, I thought, yeah, I could probably have a crack at that, and... and it was uncanny. It was actually that that afternoon that I thought, well, maybe I'll make my first inquiries about how to start the, the process for being an official. And that afternoon, they were running week number one of a brand new beginner school. So whether there was something iconic in that or not, I, I, I made the call. I turned up at 6pm at, at the local Doncaster Stadium and started this beginner referee course. And and that's what the the journey looks like right at the start. Yeah, you start working junior games and and cold Saturday mornings in a in a freezing stadium, and then and then you eventually do some some senior stuff, still local, but but at the um, at the domestic level. All, all the while trying to work through through what the the first real step looks like for your officiating career. You'll at the domestic level, you've got your, your local grades and you go from a, a beginner to a C grade, B grade, A grade. And, and then once you get uh, nominated that you're actually reasonable at refereeing, you would then get invited to, to some of the state representative competitions. And, and in basketball in Victoria, that, that is the, the Junior Basketball League, uh, which is played on a Friday night. That's, that's what the, is called the first official representative level. And then you're in the state system, so I'm sure very similar to how it works in football. Uh, You start working junior games and then um, after a few years you get uh, appointed to the the state representative level, which in in my day was called the Big V, the Victorian Basketball League. Yep, yep, which is a, a home and away team versus team situation Um, And then, of course, uh, along that journey, you're probably getting invited to some national action. So we have the national championships, which are held each year for all the different age groups. So my journey was under 14s to 16s to 18s to to 20s. And so you're getting introduced to Basketball Australia competitions, and they're getting introduced to you as a a potential long-term prospect. And, And obviously doing well at those tournaments turns everybody onto your channel, so to speak. Uh, and then when you're working the, the top state levels, then then eventually you have a, an opportunity to work the, the semi-national levels, which which in my day was called the the SEBIL or the Southeast Australian Basketball League, which was largely an Australian Eastern Seaboard competition, which for, for most of of basketball uh, officiating journeys is is the feeder league to to the NBL or or at least the WNBL and then the, the NBL um, now it's called NBL 1 that they've been able to pull all of the, the feeder leagues under the, the NBL banner. But it, it is a, a journey that goes from from grassroots all the
1: way through to the National League and, and everybody has to start somewhere. So from that dinner table conversation, you make the call, you rock up at the course. And what's your first impression? Because I, I have a, a clear, in my memory when I started refereeing, I have a clear idea of when I rocked up to my branch and went, oh, okay, this is interesting. How did you go from being a, from, you know, as a player approaching the refereeing world? What was the feeling, That the ideas? What What did you think? Did you go, did you think, oh, this is going to be easy, I'm going to nail this? Or were you a bit scared, a bit, a bit worried about the whole thing?
2: Look, so I, I need to be honest. I, I was an okay player, but I was never going to make any great heights. And so... My first thoughts about the the refereeing caper was firstly now it's starting to make sense because when you're playing you're either getting called for things or you're not, not understanding why things are, are happening in a certain fashion and being exposed to the rule book for the first time was often a light bulb moment. So all of a sudden you, you know the fouls, you know the violations, you, you know even the protocols about how to conduct a basketball game. So it, things things were very clear to me, and and it must have uh, flicked some sort of interest because uh, I'm analytical by nature, and and so the the very nature of officiating is to be analytical and to make decisions and to understand the rules, and so I think I was drawn to that, and and I never had any any sense but uh, confidence, and um, I, I think I could be reasonable at this. So there are some people that get into it purely for money and and, and that was the reason that I started. But but very quickly I I got a sense of, hey, maybe I'm going to go okay at this and um, certainly after the first 12 or 24 months, um, I I, I knew I I could be um, quite reasonable at this and, and quickly decided that this was probably going to be my journey in basketball much more than a playing career. And as it turns out, it definitely got me a lot further.
0: That's interesting. So you kind of caught it on quite quickly that this was uh, something that, you know, I want to do, I want to take seriously. For for me, the journey was a little bit different. Like I was really, I didn't take it seriously till I was, you know, fair bit older. Till a couple
1: of years ago, Jack. Let's yeah, be honest. A few
0: years ago. Oh, some would say I still don't take it seriously, but <laughs> no, it's it's just interesting, right? How, how you got into it and, and felt straight away, oh, this is something I could be successful at. I could, I can do this. Whereas for me, it was much more just something to do at, at the start. How old were you when you did the course?
2: Training? So I started in year seven, which I think was twelve years of age.
0: Yeah. Right so even you were that young and you had that conviction that thought that yeah this is someone i i could do i want to do i find that really interesting i
2: don't think i had the thoughts of i'm going to be a national or an international referee at that age i think it was more that i would like to know how i could get better at this Mm -hmm. and take the next level i mean it when you're starting out at 12 years of age, you, you don't even know things like the Victorian Basketball League or mm. Basketball Australia and the nat- National Championships pathway or or even NBL. Like I don't think I was even watching the NBL at that mm. age. But you go, hmm, how, how do I go from a green shirt to a striped shirt? And then how do I go from a C grade to a B grade? It was more that sort of I just want to take the next steps and I think I could do that.
1: Mm. Yeah. I love how you said that you're very analytical because that's something the three of us have in common. Because, and Jack, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but we we're pretty much data nerds. We like the analytics, we like the stats, we like to the numbers. So it's, and you're right, refereeing it it can be quite analytical, especially when you're in training because you go and look at all these little niggly things, and especially in football. I I don't know about basketball as much. I know I know in the NBA, for example. They released the last two minutes, uh, the reports of the last two minutes about the refs and all this sort of stuff. But you know, in football, there used to be and there still is uh, TV shows that are just about refereeing decisions, and that's because you can get so analytical. But it's also very much a a game of opinion. We always say in football, so I, f- I found it quite interesting that that really unites us. Uh, that that analysis, then that uh, drive for for, for for the data it's quite interesting
2: Yeah, I think it's about being analytical and certainly you've got to have a passion for, for studying the rules and and being um, as professional as you can on, on that particular topic I think it's also about just wanting to do a good job for the game, mm. no, no one is really refereeing for themselves you, you, you get satisfaction when you know you've done a good job for the game and you've served the game well and so Part of that is, is knowing the the rules, which is your analytical point there once you have a passion for being analytical, it quickly turns into a passion for being good for the game.
1: yeah, that's so true uh, and that that makes me i think leads into into something that we discuss quite often uh, on our show, which is in in your career, surely there would have been defining moments which which could have been. Either highlights or hardships, uh days when you had a really good game, walked out of that uh, of that court and of that stadium and going, Man, I nailed it today, but it's also been days where you walked out of that stadium going, Oh alright, now I'm gonna have to, to watch this again. How did you deal with you know, if you if you could pinpoint um one of your best games, one of your highlights, which doesn't necessarily need to be like your uh, first international game or the the first NBL game, uh, and so if you could pinpoint one of them, what, which one would be? And if you could pinpoint a hardship, a really bad game, which one would that be? And how did you get over it?
2: There's a there's a number of highlights, and and which is when good I to you. <laughs> when I got prompted to yeah, when I got prompted to to answer this question, I, I went back in my own memory and, and thought about the highlights and. And I remember some of the, the, the big highlights aren't necessarily at the, at the national or the international level. I'm, I'm very fond of my, my junior career when, when I was at national championships and, and just like the players, you, you always strive to get the, the final, the gold medal match as it was. And so I, I did quite well at my national championships career and they're, they're very special to me because they were, they were putting me on, on a journey. I get as I get real satisfaction when I think back to when I was first awarded my, my my jacket. You know, back in back in the day, when you got a certain level, you received a, a green jacket, which was uh, a panel jacket. You only got that jacket when you reach a certain level, and so I had always seen people wearing these with a with a badge of honour and thinking, "Wow, I want one of those jackets. They they must be a fantastic referee." And so I love that moment of of finally getting that jacket and. And that was still junior basketball, but it was it was representative basketball for Victoria. And so then, then when you leapfrog a few years to, to some of the more elite moments, uh, my my favourite games were uh, the the 2018 Commonwealth Games in the Gold Coast. So it was amazing to represent Australia and and work uh, an international tournament on your home soil, which which is very rare. Uh, I did the the bronze medal uh, women's match in, in basketball. I'm sure it's the same as football. You're not allowed to officiate your own home country. And so one of the problems with, with Australia at that tournament is that there was every chance that Australia was going to be in the final. So you automatically rule your name out of that potential goal and you work to the, the next one. And, and um, it, it is highly political. It's right place, right time. And and um, I, was, I was satisfied to get a, a medal match at that. The other two moments... I, I really have a soft spot for um, the Australia versus USA friendly game at Marvel Stadium a couple of years ago. That was
0: oh, you you did that? A,
2: yeah, yeah, oh, just an awesome. awesome experience. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, unlike anything most basketball referees would ever do, um, given the, the the scale of crowd and the and the environment, the the stadium that it was in. Um, so we had. 50,000 people crammed into a football stadium that, um, that, that is grass, right? <laughs> and so the, the basketball court was elevated uh, above the, the playing surface and, and it was essentially a, an island, a basketball island. And, and it was just the officials and just the, the players that were on this elevated pitch and the, the feeling was was surreal because because it's such a large room we go there to watch we watch football and we watch Australian rules and so it's such a large room and 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 the crowd is so so distant so that was quite unique for us because usually we're very close to firstly the crowd um, and, and also the coaches but we were actually somewhat removed and, and it was all black so it was it was literally like um, a stage we, we, we were the the, the actors the participants but the rest of the stadium was essentially black and all we could hear was noises on the big moments and the occasional lights and and um, laser show but that that was that was quite outrageous that is an experience and um, i i was very privileged to get that because there was only two of those games and and therefore only six officials got to work them
0: Yeah, that's epic. That's such a huge game. So so for people listening for overseas, so basketball is big in Australia, but, you know, obviously the NBA is is the big league and it was a real, there was a lot of excitement about the city and about Australia when um, Team USA came out here to play a couple of exhibition games. It was was huge for um, Australian basketball. And as, as I've said, I'm not a basketball fan, but uh, it was everywhere I, even I always thought oh that's a really cool thing so to to do that game John that, that's amazing I can, I can tell why that's a highlight
2: it was it was quite historic. it was the first time that the Australian national team had actually beaten team USA who had always had the, the benefit um, over our, our federation so that was that was uh, I mean clearly you, you weren't there to try and facilitate that outcome. <laughs> um, we, we were neutral and, and we were representing the, the international federation for these appointments but um you could just tell that the, the crowd was really getting behind the, the australian boomers and come the final moments when it was it was close and it was coming down to the wire that that was that was something else in terms of volume and craziness and uh yeah i, I remember after the the game after everyone had cleared out and, and we'd had our showers and we got our our, our suits back on. I actually walked back out to to the stadium, and, and the cleaners were there, and the the staging people were packing down this elevated court. And I, I just sat. I just sat um, at the boundary line, usually where I go and watch Australian rules. I, I just sat there and going, "Geez, this will never be repeated." So
1: that was that was quite special. Yeah, you can tell. You can see your face lights up talking about it, and can only imagine the emotions. So. Great memory.
2: Yeah, we were actually getting we were getting high fived on on the way to the the court. So unlike a basketball court where you have the, the change rooms very close to the playing surface, you can you can imagine it's a football pitch. And so you you all the change rooms are on the boundary line. And so once once we were walking onto the race, the only way to get to the middle court was th- through this corridor of fans because. The, the playing surface was actually full of seats. Mm-hmm. And so there was a, a two-metre-wide corridor with with barricades either side. And so the, the fans, they were they were lined up along this corridor, clearly not looking for referees. They were looking <laughs> at, at the superstars, you know, Andrew Bogut's of the world and, and all the Team USA that had come out. And so they were, they were all with their hands out, you know, high-fiving. And then we walked out and... The, the hands didn't disappear. They were interested in getting a, a little bit of skin from the officials. Which uh, you, you take those moments, but clearly, I think it was being more hospitable rather than actual yeah. fandom for the officiating crew.
0: Well, it would have been it would have been a majority Australian crowd, and and you know maybe maybe the crowd knew the officials were Australian as
2: well. <laughs> yeah, rock star for five seconds. Rough
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> Ref Warehouse is Australia's largest online store for referee and umpire kits. Visit www.refwarehouse.com.au and use the discount code REFCOACH to get 20% off on all orders over $50. The offer is only valid for the next seven days. So don't waste time and head now to refwarehouse.com.au and get yourself some new gear for the upcoming season.
0: So, so John, obviously um, the USA against Australia game was a huge highlight. You've had some real success in your career in the NBL as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I did six seasons at the National Basketball League and and did just over a hundred games. Um, really, really amazing experience uh, to date. the The league, even in my time, has grown from strength to strength, and and to see stadiums now full again is really good for the league. Uh, I I was lucky enough to be awarded finals and. Um, the grand final in 2018-19 with with United and Perth, and that that's something that I hold really dear to my heart. the the notion of a of a grand final was a was a foreign goal for for most of the career, and all of a sudden you've now got that, and so um, it's it's just another game, but of course there's there's a bit more hype around it, a bit more pressure on it. It, it was fortunate for, for me that it wasn't a particularly close game, and. And I always found that the that the games that there's a the clear difference in score line was always the better because there was no threat of, of the officials ever being accused of of costing <laughs> yeah. a game. So it was um, a, a comfortable game. Ah, uh, John,
1: us. I, I was that I was at that game watching you, and I can I can I can vouch that you did a great job. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you, Ali. I think you were supporting United, right? Who won? So it's always nice to to get uh, a That's yes, correct. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but look, the NBL the has, has been great for my career. We, we're we producing quality officials. We have a different style to, to some of the other parts of the world, but we we have a, a quality of whistle that, that stacks up um, internationally. And um, you asked me a question about the disappointments over the career, and I think that the ones that come to mind are, are the ones where you know that um, the game has suffered. and And sometimes it's actually not... Because your your performance was poor, one of the one of the biggest disappointments I, I have in a game happens, I think in that season as well, and and it was it was an Adelaide and Melbourne game, and I've already said about it, the most important thing for an official is is to serve the game well, and that's what we get passionate about. We we, we don't walk off the game when we've called a record number of fouls, or that we've we've. Um, put ourselves in glory because we've had some big moments. What we want to do is walk off the game knowing that we served the game as best as possible and allowed both teams to participate at the highest level and to give the fans a, a fantastic experience. And this one game, it was a it was a game just before Christmas and Adelaide and, and Melbourne was always a, a hot game. But it was always a, a very fiery experience for us. And this one night it was it was a close game and I fought in the last ninety seconds there was about four big calls and they were all in my direction so they were all on me to make and they were all against adelaide and the the problem with with one of the big calls was that it was the first time that the nbl had ever seen a new interpretation applied to a new rule so it, it was an unsportsmanlike foul international rules had just put in a new interpretation and it, as i said it was the first time that we had to make this call and it was at the dire straits of the of the game and i had to find the courage and i made the call and it was completely correct 100 percent correct textbook interpretation of the rule but in 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 previous times that call would have been made differently and so the entire basketball world had thought that i had ruined the game so through through social media through the the newspapers even even past players and commentators essentially thought I, I had ruined what was a good game. And only now do we do we see this call made and we, we don't think anything of it. This is now normal. But the first one is always the one that hurts. And and for me, I was devastated because you never want to be the one that, that is, is being accused of ruining a, a fantastic game. And, and what made it even harder is that in two days' time on Christmas Eve, I was appointed to go to Adelaide and referee them in a game. And so I, I was the worst guy in Adelaide and the the warm up in the Adelaide stadium Titanium Security Arena was um personal to say the least and and that was I found it really difficult to firstly recover um from that game but then so quickly to go back back into the the battlegrounds and um fortunately it, w- it was a clean game it, it it went well and and I think over time people realized that it wasn't John Chapman that had ruined the game. It was actually John Chapman who was brave on, on that first call and, and was simply applying the interpretations and the rules.
1: As referees, we know that media and, and social media and, and the public's opinion, unfortunately, always plays, uh, fortunately and unfortunately, always plays a part in, in what we do and what we see. But there was such a short time to go back, not only to referee the same team, but at their home ground, at their home court. Like, did you, how did you approach that? What is, was there anything different than maybe you did in approaching that game? Anything you told yourself, anything you, you know, because that's like, you had 48 hours to go and see the same people that for two days probably were have been slamming you.
0: And I presume, John, you were already appointed to that second game before the incident happened in the first game.
1: That's
2: right. The appointments were already out. I was due to go to Adelaide and... It was it was discussed as to whether it would be appropriate for me to be removed from that appointment for for political reasons and and sometimes there's no need to expose an official to the same players or teams yeah. if you can help it yeah you know, it's just basic exactly. frequency yeah. management and, and uh, relationship management um, we had some discussions with with the commissioner who was who was fully supportive because because the call was correct and I think I think it was. In the end, the best decision to send me back and to honour the original appointment because it was it was validating the call. And yes, yes, it was uncomfortable to walk into that stadium, but it wasn't because I had done wrong. And and I think the the opportunity to go to Adelaide and to to look the coaches and the players in the eyes and go, yes, I know it was a, a difficult moment. I know it was an unfortunate call, and, and you guys were were on the the end of it. But uh, I'm here to do another good job. And if that thing comes up tonight, uh, you'll be getting that call. And I'm here to to prove that that I was correct on that night. And I'm here to to prove I'm correct tonight. And and I I think it was it was the right decision to show confidence to myself, confidence to my fellow officials, and also
1: to prove I'm ready to serve um, the next game, which was Adelaide and Cairns. That's that would take such mental strength. I mean. You know, good on you. I I think it's great. I think all you said makes total sense, you know, especially, and we know as referees, Jack, uh, even in football, you know, the laws change every year, uh, basically. And every year there's new controversy. In the last two, three years, they probably changed so many times that sometimes you go out on the pitch and you're like, oh, hang on, what's going on? I I don't, it gets, it does get confusing, but it, it does take, courage and and lots of mental strength to to be able to just go and say look i'm just gonna face it i know the good things that you knew you were in the right so that gives you the confidence and say look i've done nothing wrong it's their perception uh it's their understanding which it's incorrect but it's on them i've done the right thing very very hard very hard
2: that's what we're in the game for right to make the tough calls and to be brave yeah, it's not an easy gig and sometimes it could be the best call in the world but you could be the worst worst guy in the stadium the, the most hated guy in the stadium but I thought you when you when you throw on the whistle you know exactly what you're in for it's going to be a bumpy ride for good or for bad.
0: Ale and I can definitely empathize with that we've we've been through it ourselves the highs are very very high oh, but yeah. the, low, the lows are hard right we're all going to make mistakes we're all humanists literally impossible to not to not make those mistakes but something I'd love to chat to you about over the next little while is some of the skills you've learned along that journey uh, you know what they are how you learn them but then also how do they apply to the real world how have they helped you in the real world because I always talk about how valuable the life skills are as a kid and, and you know the first one that jumps out for me is Communication. I know you said you started as a twelve-year-old. I started as a fourteen-year-old. Ali, right, you were slightly older, but still applies. It is you know going out and refereeing and and having to communicate with adults as a child, I think is such a valuable life skill. Would you guys agree? Yeah,
2: I would absolutely agree. And and whether that was part of my my mum's mm-hmm. masterstroke decision to to send me into a a job that was going to apply some real life skills but communication would, would certainly be at the top of it. And if you can't communicate amongst your the stakeholders within the sport, within the game, you're never going to be a good official. And 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 I think we can all identify a number of our, our favourite referees, our mentors, and one of the, the most common things will be they just communicated really well. They were able to say the right thing at the right time, maybe sometimes not say anything at all. That, that's a form of communication as well. And... Um, there, there were many there were many moments that, that communication gets you out of jail and it's that ability to to be confident with that communication um, to, to be succinct but also to be uh, convincing in what you're saying and and certainly that's a skill that that officiating um, encourages improves inside a person and, and that that's a that's a life school that you can take anywhere into your job into your uh, friendships, into your other relationships, that, that communication is really important.
0: I think another one, Ale, that I know you and I have touched on on recently is, is being able to make decisions under pressure, right, which becomes second nature through refereeing. But I was exposed to a situation at work that was new, it was challenging, it was different. Um, and I reflected to Ale and said, oh, isn't it interesting how, When I'm on the football pitch, you're out there making decisions under pressure and it's second nature, but that I'm having to do the same thing at work. And I know I've got these skills, but with it being in a different environment, it challenges you in in quite a different
1: way, which surprised me. Well, think about the experience that um, what, what you went through with that Adelaide game that you talked about before, John. Talk about being under pressure. Again, the reasons doesn't matter whether whether it was because of a right call or wrong call. But going out there and having that that stress, that 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 feeling, and having to deal with it in everyday life, like you could go from the silliest of the of the examples of going to to talk to a stranger at a bar, or or going to a a much more formal situation where you are at work and you have to present in front of the whole company of. Or things like that, it's they're all skills that really intertwine, and uh, you know how do, you, how do you how do you think uh, refereeing impacted you uh, from that point of view, John?
2: The ability to make great decisions is important in refereeing, obviously, but it's important to do that in life to have conviction with the the decisions you make and they can be small decisions that you make. Uh, numerous times a day or they could be life-changing decisions but there's a common thread amongst that and that's when you're making decisions you've got to be confident you have to back yourself in if you apply that to to officiating confident decisions come with experience for sure because you've seen that call you've seen that situation and you know exactly what to do the other part of it is is knowing the information so right place right time right positioning getting all the information that that particular situation is throwing your way. And it's also about knowing the rules. And so confident decisions comes because you have the rules to back you up. And so if you link that to that call we will talk about, I was completely confident with that decision. It wasn't because um, I had any any better positioning or information because of the call. It was because I knew the rule 100%. I had seen the training videos, I had read the rule book, I had understood the interpretations and exactly the, the triggers and the criteria that should be used when you apply that decision. And so it, it, it took me no moment to make that call. And that's what's really important. When, when you have experience, information and data, then your decision-making is confident. And I think you could apply that into your professional careers as well. Uh, decision-making in the workplace, uh, no matter what what style of uh, employment you're in, or what what tier of employment you're in, you're getting employed to make good decisions and prompt decisions. Okay, and, and I think that's that's a great outcome of, of officiating because it, it it trains you. You're making thousand decisions in each game, so naturally you have uh, better performance at, at this concept of making decisions. And I think I think the people that that struggle in in work or maybe even life in general, I think you would say it's because they they can't make good decisions. They either don't make decisions quick enough. They don't make decisions convincingly enough. Um, and, and we're not talking about hasty decisions. We're talking about qualified, validated, important decisions that have been thought through and backed up by experience and information.
0: And in refereeing, in basketball or in football, all of what you just said happens in an instant. At work, you might have you know, you, you have all the data in front of you. You can read the data three, four, five times. You can get advice. And, you know, these decisions happen much slower. In football, we just have to do everything you just said, John, but in an instant, off the one hit we've got.
2: I know. Without the seven TV camera angles, without the, the comfortable position of the couch, without the slow mo replay, yeah, we're making that call in real time. And, yep, you're going to get some wrong but we get them right more than we do incorrectly. And I remember in my first couple of games, um, you know, when I was a, when I was a beginner right, right at Doncaster, the, the, most, the most common feedback you will get from your trainer is, is make a decision. Get in the habit of blowing the whistle and making a decision. And, and then the confidence builds. And then the, the outcome experience builds. You, you understand that when you, when you blow the whistle, the game stops. And then, when you make a decision, then the game reacts to that decision. And, and we start that journey of, of getting this, this experience. And, and some of those experiences will accumulate over 5, 10, 20 years of a career. And that it, it all is this, this wonderful bank of information so that when you are in the middle of High Sense Arena and it's two points and you're ready to make a, a decision that might cost someone uh, a, a fifth foul or, or a team the position in the finals. Then, then, then you have the, the confidence and the backing to make that decision in a split moment.
1: I love that. I love that. Just make a decision. Like to me, even now as a coach and before as a referee, so many times this has been a simple thing but so key in everything. Just make a decision that just Waiting for something to happen or just standing by, that's the worst decision you could do. Just make a decision. Worst case, you get it wrong. But you know what? If you don't do anything, you're surely going to get it wrong. It's like that simple. I I truly, truly love that. That was so powerful for me.
0: Ale, do you think that applies? Obviously, John's example there was, was when he was refereeing at Doncaster as a junior. Do you think that applies to more levels of refereeing than just the beginners?
1: Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Well, I think without a doubt, because you still you still see, at even at elite level, sometimes, especially if you take football with VAR, this was quite discussed in uh, in Italy, my home country, a couple of years back, when new referees were coming through the ranks, and the problem was that they were trained to referee with VAR, and too often they ended up not making decisions because, well, I got VAR to back me up. And that's where the problems with VAR came on, because you're not making a decision. But then when VAR comes and asks you, what did you see? All of a sudden, you're wasting time sort of trying to, oh, what did they do there? So you still have to make a decision. Um, I think, you know, VAR in football, obviously, it's the best example you could find. I know in in basketball, you do have a similar system where you can go and review some plays. Uh, I don't know the details, obviously, around it, but... I I feel it's we could probably find some similarities there, um, although it's probably more referee-driven um, because it's the trio it's the trio on the court that goes oh, hang on let's go and review. Whilst they are. it's someone that sometimes is not even in the stadium. So I totally think so, Jack. I mean, sometimes just not making that de- not making a decision is the worst decision you can make. You'd rather get it wrong and be corrected, but at least have the courage have the confidence to say, this is what I think, and talking about skills that you learn from refereeing, you know, if you make a mistake, it's as simple as saying, oh, look, I got that wrong. It's it's what it is. For the 99 I Get Right, the 100th one, it's going to be wrong. I'll admit it, and i Personally, not just in refereeing, but as a person, I'll always have respect for someone that does that. And players and coaches are very responsive to that, I've always found, because i made lots of mistakes, <laughs> so I've had to admit it lots of times. <laughs> but it's always worked well. Everyone's always said, well, I'll appreciate that, because it takes maturity. you got to be a mature person to admit you made a mistake, and, yeah. and that's it. I mean, it's that simple. Once you've done it, you've done it, but at least you had the courage to do it.
0: But that's another life skill, right, which I'd never even considered from refereeing until you said that moment and it's having the I don't know the right word is strength of character or, or the humility but to be able to admit you made a mistake
1: like Jack is it's vulnerability we always yeah. say it, but you gotta be vulnerable to criticism you gotta be in there like my one of my favorite Brenner Brown would say you gotta be the man in the arena because if you're not even entering the arena you're not playing you're not part of the game well you can't really criticize mm. those who are so being vulnerable enough to say, "Look, I made a mistake. It's up to you reacting to it the way you want it." But I did it. That's it. That's me. But at least I tried. That's courage. That's vulnerability. That's all it is.
2: Yeah, it's a great word, Jack. The the humility side of things is is super important. And and I often got tagged as, as the arrogant ref, and and it really really cut to me. And and I know it cuts other officials when when they're when their perception is, is they're the arrogant one. Because on the inside, uh, I, I'm trying to be as humble and responsible to to the players and the coaches as possible. And we, we're humans. And I think the more times that a referee can have human-style interactions with the stakeholders is is the better. And and some of being a human is, is what you were saying, Ali. It was... About accepting that you will make mistakes, accepting that you might have made a, a mistake and, and that has some some consequences on on the player or, or the team. And, and it's often one of the best ways to to resolve the, the tension and the conflict. And, and don't get me wrong, it's it's not something you want to be saying, um, twenty calls in a game, yeah, I got it wrong. I, I'll yeah. get it better next yeah. time. But but sometimes that that moment of honesty and and humanity be going, yep. I think you've got a point there. I'd like to have that one back it is a really good way to to solve the problem. And, and typically most coaches and players would respect that.
0: Yeah. As long as it doesn't become a consistent theme, like you said, you know, it's used <laughs> sparingly, you know, you, you might get a throw in wrong in the second minute and it's probably not a big deal. No one's going to complain. So there's no need to run around and tell everyone for the next 10 minutes. Yeah. You got that thrown wrong. Sorry, sorry, but, sorry, but... sorry. <laughs> But using it at the right time, it, like you said, John, it can be such a, such a good tool, an icebreaker, a pressure breaker. It, it can be really, really beneficial. And something maybe I think, you know, we'd probably all like to see
1: in our workplaces a little bit more. Not only in the workplaces, in general, in life.
0: Yeah, true, in the world. No, no, fair point.
1: Jack, one of the other things
2: you were talking about, and, and I found that one of the, the big life skills as well being an official forces you to be a more organized and a more professional person it, it forces you to start to get a handle on schedules and turning up to things on time and making sure you do your preparation and and your diligence with with reporting and rules as well it also makes you um, more professional the way you carry yourselves the way you prepare physically uh, fitness away from the floor or the way you, you conduct your, yourself when you're, when you're engaging at the venue and, and you're warming up or you're at post-game functions, what you're wearing to, to the venue, um, this all counts for this perception about are you a professional at your craft? A- and I think that that switches on a certain part of, of the mind and I've found myself carrying that same mentality to, to most things that I do and, and, and most importantly in the business world is about how you, how you can be a professional and organised uh, and, and be um, really conscious about um, the, the, the way people might be viewing and seeing your behaviour and your appearances.
0: I think certainly for, for junior Fs, John, what you touched on early in that piece about just you know the scheduling, what time you're going to be there, right? what do I need to do before the game? Those are such key skills that kids don't really have the opportunity to learn anywhere else at that age yeah it naturally comes through going through your latter years of school going into university I mean I'm sure we can all think of someone who we think well they've never learned those skills but generally you know for kids to have the opportunity to to learn that and they're, they're going to screw up right they're going to turn up late to the game because they didn't prepare or pack their bags or and yeah it's going to be annoying to the teams of the day but that's a life lesson for that kid which is very hard to come by at at a young age like that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Made easier with an officiating technology platform as well.
1: So, John, we talked about your career and we talked about the the skills that intertwine between refereeing, business, real world, all this sort of stuff. And a couple of years back or or more recently, you've decided to to take a break from refereeing but still work in something referee-related. Do you want to tell us a little bit uh, more about that?
2: Yeah, so one of the reasons I... I had last season off was to focus on some of my, my businesses. Uh, I have a, an officiating apparel and equipment business that, that services a number of sports with, with some of the best officiating brands around the world, uh, but also have founded a technology business. And through my own experiences, and I'm sure these will be very familiar with yourself and the listeners, is that officials are often the last to receive resources um, and often the last to receive Technology, we see it all the time with with players and and development, and even the actual administration of sport is often quite rich with technology. But from our own experiences, the 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 satisfaction um, has has never been able to to arrive for technology for us. And so, uh, co-founded um, a, a brand new officiating management platform called RefBook, which has been a very exciting part of the last five years of my life. And we are really rethinking about how officials are managed inside technology. Um, Certainly from from the most basic things regarding contact details and availability and and how you receive your appointments, all the way through to the back of house administration, including match payments and reporting, qualification management, and also being able to identify the, the officiating pathway and what is the typical recipe of success going from the from the, the early days as a as a green shirt all the way through to the elite ends. So RefBook is on a, a real upward journey. We have a number of key federations in Australia using the platform. We have a number of football associations getting involved with us and really we haven't we haven't officially put this um, to market in terms of a hard launch yet. We've been working with strategic partners, really rounding out our functionality and I, I know Ali will be um well versed in this space given his um, experience in technology on a on a professional level. But the the journey for Refbook is, is very, very exciting and we can't wait to see where it goes.
1: So speaking of making decisions, uh when was the was there a moment where you just went, you know, what you were using for your appointments was just oh, driving you mad and you just went, screw this I got to do something about it. Did you have a moment like that? Did you have a a light bulb moment where you said, no, that's enough. I got to do something about it.
2: I think it was the higher up I got in in basketball, the more disappointed I was that the systems weren't in place. And this is really common with a number of the state and national federations that we're in discussions with right now is that most of officials management is still being done on Excel spreadsheets and Google Forms and Facebook groups.
0: And for me as a... John, I I know you know this, um, but speaking from an A-league level, we get our appointments via email, we get our assessment reports via email, they're completed in, I would say it's probably a Word doc, Um, and then at a second division level, it's assessments done in Jot Forms, and they use a glorified Excel spreadsheet for appointments, so can vouch for exactly what you just said at all levels.
2: Yeah, it, it just, it didn't make sense, and and I had done a lot of research and even been exposed to some of the other providers out there. There's a lot of technologies from from the states that, that are trying to solve this space and and none of them stacked up in my opinion. and fortunately, my co-founder is a very experienced head of technology and and he understood the science and, and the database structures around that. and we, we, we felt compelled to have a go at ourselves. And combining our commercial and our technology backgrounds, we, we really rethought how officials could and should be managed inside technology from an administration point of view, from a tracking point of view, and eventually from a development and high-performance analytics point of view as well. And to, to, to answer your question really succinctly, I, I think it was just being really disappointed that, that I'd got to the highest levels and, and that still we weren't in a, in a professional and a modern environment that was handling our processes um, away from the floor at the international level we were we were tracked um, through polar heart rates you know getting all our biometrics um, heart rate data and stuff like that but but the back of house w- was still being done so poorly and that that was at the international level um, and so you can imagine if, if it's a problem at the top end then it must be a really big problem at the bottom end and, and that's where we need officials in all sports there's a there's a real shortage of officials at the local level and it's often volunteer basis. And there's the volume of games. It's not so bad at the A-League or the NBL where there might only be a panel of 35 or 50 officials and there's eight or nine games to, to fixture or to appoint each round. But when you're working the local level, there might be hundreds of games across a hundred venues on any given weekend. And so if that's being run by volunteers, and you haven't got an efficient process, then we're we're taking valuable time away from the most important part of officiating, and that's recruiting, training, and developing the next journey for its officials.
0: I think that's a crucial point. Haven't been involved in in the back end of uh, was, um, for our local branch when I was at uni. I was doing the appointments of referees, and I think you know if you can make that more efficient, then it's exactly what you said. I would have much rather spent my time focusing on coaching referees rather than doing the you know, admin of appointments and somebody's declined a game while they need to be replaced, which then has a knock-on. It's sometimes to six, seven other games because you move one ref and everything moves with it. So if you can create those efficiencies, it it can have a genuine impact and it comes right back to what you said at the start around serving the game right. Well, that is a great way to serve the game. You're getting guys off computers, off spreadsheets and out there helping young, new junior referees at that level or all the way right to the top level
2: and that journey is really important Jack from from the first time you, you put on a whistle and you're officiating the the local league at the junior level through to the international level that that history often just evaporates and, and I myself had a, a, a spreadsheet that tracked all of my games right but unless you have uh, the motivation to to handle all that that history it just disappears and so your, your total game counts, the, the times that you got your qualifications, the, the big moments and your finals that you might want to um, uh, keep track of over the, the history, that it just disappears. It's not in a, in a nice platform and, and particularly when you're looking at how to grow a good generation of referees, you often don't understand the recipe. Is its is it five years at the junior level and then it's three years it the, at the senior level before it's worthy of, of getting to the national level? That, that stuff just doesn't exist in our fraternity
1: and it, it's quite disappointing. It's quite crazy. I mean, it's almost 2022. Like, I mean, we've seen, we've seen how much you can do with a couple of dollars and and just a bit of knowledge. You know, with Ref coach, we've done so much and we haven't even tried to, to spend or invest or probably even put as much effort into developing that side of things just because we don't have the, the physical time. But... It's crazy to think the Federation still run off these almost archaic uh, systems because now we have we have the, the the possibility and you know the opportunities and that's that's where where you know people like you and, and Troy your partner um, your business partner right, are coming in 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 this space because that we need this innovation and it feels like it feels like basketball is very similar to football but it's almost like officials have been stuck into this 20 years ago stage where, well, this is how we do things. Why should we change? Well, maybe it's maybe because you can focus on other things. Maybe 20 years ago, there wasn't a a problem with recruitment. People were coming in because they were coming in. But also 20 years ago, there wasn't social media destroying people. Uh, I know I had articles made about my performances and my mistakes or, you know, perceived so back in the days. Uh, even when I started refereeing in Italy, maybe 20 years ago, that didn't happen. Uh, so it's a whole new era. It's a whole new world. And ofi- officiating really needs to keep up. And technology is there for us to to do so. Yeah, I couldn't agree more.
0: No, it it comes back to enablement, right? Technology in, in well, technology in anything, but technology in refereeing should enable referees to do their jobs whether that's making it more efficient, whether it's making it more enjoyable, whether it's making it more accessible. Um, you know, I, I know our local association here is, uh, I think they've moved their basic referee course online uh, because of COVID, things like that, right? It's enabling the game. And, and sure, there's going to be loads to do with refereeing you can't learn on a computer. But if you can enable people to referee more, so you're growing referees, if you can, through Ref, but John, and enable... Uh, or reduce the administrative burden so people can spend their time developing referees. Well, that's enabling the game. It's enabling people's enjoyment. That's for me what all of this stuff you two are talking about around tech and, and refereeing, it comes back to. And that's probably my perspective as a user because I'm not actively involved in in it as much as you two are.
2: hundred percent. Everything around us is moving online. Um, and even in the officiating space that slowly, slowly, like you say, we're, we're, we're embracing this thing called technology. Um, VARs, online learning, uh, fitness tracking. And, and once we close the loop on, on the administrative and, and the high-performance analytics of things, then, then there's, it just enables us to improve what we're getting paid to do, what we love to do, and that's a good job.
0: So, John, really appreciate you, you joining us tonight. Um, I know it's, it's nearly the end of lockdown in Melbourne, so we're lucky to get you just before uh, real life comes back into it. But it, it was a really insightful conversation for me, um, seeing a different sport through the eyes of a referee, but obviously a sport I'm I'm completely unaware with. But what I think stood out a lot for me was that the challenges you guys face are the same and what you guys get out of refereeing is really similar to us. In the example, we touched on the transferable skills and you know, that's a conversation I, I think we talked about it for 15 minutes, but we could talk about it for a long, long time because there's so many similarities between the two, right? So really interesting and I, I really appreciate it. So that was brilliant. And as a user, it's exciting to hear about what you're doing with Refbook um, because I can't count the amount of times I've complained to LA about systems we use or... or you know we can't log in or, or whatever it doesn't tell me the right information or, or whatever that might be so i'm hoping as a user RefBook goes from absolute strength to strength so that i can use it and can have a better experience myself
2: thanks guys it's been an absolute pleasure great chatting with you guys tonight and great podcast all the best to, to listen in for the future
1: thank you john if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more hit the subscribe button For
0: more referee education, join our Facebook group and become a RefCoach member for free at refcoach.org. If you like the work we do, you can support us by purchasing a RefCoach whistle to show that you're part of a RefCoach community when you're out on the pitch.